there is a old maxim that is at the heart of any journalism ethics class. It is would be taught in journalism 101, and it is this. A journalist should never become the story. A journalist should never become the story. And this came from a time when journalists were regarded as, at least uh, in their own mind, this objective source of reporting on what was true. They were the ones who brought you to the story, who brought you to the scene. And therefore, it was essentially important that the reporter did not become part of the story. The, the journalist was an impartial observer on the story, certainly not part of it. And even today, generally among the old guard of journalists, you'll still see those journalists saying a journalist is never to become part of the story. There is today a new generation of journalists who are increasingly challenging that and say the journalist can become part of the story. The journalist is indeed sometimes part of the story. My job is not to give you a discourse on journalistic ethics tonight. It is to say that the Christian should never be the story. The Christian should never be the story, I hasten to add, when it comes to the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Christian gives the story. As we know, in fact, the, Paul likens our job as a gospel witness to a herald. A herald was the one in ancient days, the town crier. The one who would go into the town square and say, there is a message from the king. That town herald was not the story. The story was what the king thought the story was. The story was what the update from the battle zone was. That was the story. The herald's job was simply to say what the story was. And I'm gleaning this from 2 Timothy chapter 2 when I think a passage we read tonight that is one of the most essential passages in all of our Bible for you to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. Now what have we been doing over the last many weeks now? We've been going over what the gospel is and how we share it to people. We've been trying to do an evangelism 101 course. We started with what the gospel actually is from 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is not just that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, not just that he was buried, not just that he was raised from the dead. The gospel is that Jesus was seen because at the heart of the gospel is that there is an objective, verifiable fact. There is an empty tomb. What is essential to the gospel is that Jesus is alive, that he is a living being right now, that he exists, that he is coming back to be our judge. That is to say, when we present the gospel, we can never present it as just a set of theological ideas, even true and right theological ideas. Those theological ideas must be presented with the reality that Jesus is alive. There is an empty tomb. And a gospel presentation that misses that has not given the true essence of the gospel, is not coming in to the entire uh, presentation of what God expects. Then, over the last several weeks, we've been talking about what that gospel means in different aspects. One, from Ephesians 1, was this divine plan of the gospel. 
You remember that Jesus, that we have been known in him and chosen in him before the foundation of the world. As we see in the book of Revelation, our names, if we are Christians, were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. How? Why? Because we were chosen. Why? Because we were predestined. Why were we predestined? Because we were foreknown. Why were we foreknown? That's up to God. All we know is what the Bible teaches. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And this is not a doctrine that we need to run from, that we need to avoid. This is to be a great comfort to us as Christians. And then we talked about this idea of the gospel as human responsibility, that even though there is this divine plan in which we are chosen in him, the gospel is the heart of God reaching out to all mankind. It is the heart of God that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And it is as near us as in our hearts, our hearts and in our mouths. In our mouths, if we confess that Jesus is Lord, and two, if we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. God has brought it down to the level of humanity so that it may be accepted. And he holds out his arms to mankind saying, accept my good news. These are the two parts of the gospel, the two railroad tracks that may appear to be in tension with one another, but truly are both truths that we see in the Bible and need to confidently proclaim and live under. And last week we talked about the divine prosecutor, the Holy Spirit in the gospel. He is the one who convinces and convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He glorifies Jesus Christ. He is the one whose ministry is essential in the divine plan and bringing about the human responsibility uh, that is implicit in the gospel. Now tonight I want to focus on one more aspect, one more facet, if you will, of the gospel before we really become specific at how you, specifically you, can be an influence for the gospel in your daily lives. And it's what I'm going to call tonight the gospel, a Christian disposition. The gospel, a Christian disposition. We've talked about the divine plan, the human responsibility, the divine prosecutor, the Holy Spirit, and now tonight, the Christian, your and my disposition when it comes to the gospel of Christ. Would you open with your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and let's look at these verses that have been read for us this evening. Paul, in this book, is speaking to his protege, his mentee, the one who he had such a, a, an influential part of discipling, his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy was a church leader, he had a very important job to be delegated from Paul to lead churches in the area of Ephesus. And Paul is giving him instruction as a young man, as a young leader, uh, and as a man who needed this kind of instruction in his own leadership. Now here we see in verse 20, if we're just having context, Paul has this picture of what a useful minister is. He said, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, precious vessels in this house, but then there are also vessels of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. He said, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, set apart, and meet or fit for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. He's telling Timothy how to be an effective worker for Jesus Christ, an effective leader. And he goes on to say in verse 22, flee also youthful lusts, those lusts that are, that are conducive to youth, that are a part of our youthful experience, but follow 
righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And notice verse 23. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender or create strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. He must not be a battler, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure, or perhaps, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. This, this passage describes the Christian disposition for all of us when it comes to the way that you and I present the gospel to everyone around us, whether that's in our families, whether that's in our neighborhoods, whether that is through our church ministry here at Straight Gate Church, whether that is at our workplace, this is a Christian disposition that applies to every servant of the Lord, of which I hope everyone that is born again here tonight is indeed that servant. I want to look at three things. First of all, the properties of this disposition. What are the basic properties, the basic characteristics of this disposition that Paul is holding out and commanding for all of us to follow? Start with me in verse 24. The servant of the Lord must not strive. This word is very basic. It just simply means to fight. It means to go to war. Well, Paul is telling us that for any evangelist, we must not go to war. We must not fight. Another way that you would put it, perhaps more commonly, you might say bicker, quarrel, strive in a kind of contentious kind of argument. Now, that may strike us initially as a little bit strange, because we are commanded in Scripture to think of ourselves as soldiers, aren't we? We are commanded ourselves to put on, commanded in Scripture to put on the whole armor of God, to stand against the wiles of the devil. We are warriors. Onward, Christian soldiers going forth to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. And so, therefore, in this passage, it might strike us as a little bit odd that Paul is saying the servant of the Lord must not strive, must not be a battler, must not be a warrior in this particular context. We're going to come back to why I think this passage holds together and presents us a really wonderful truth. But for right now, just have the picture in your mind that when you are, go to evangelize, when you go to tell other people about Jesus Christ, in a certain sense, you are not gearing up for war. That's not who you are. You're not putting your battle suit on. That's not who we are. And we'll try to explain that in a little bit. Notice what's second. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. Gentle. That word gentle is used only one other place in our New Testament. It has the idea of being kind and of being affable, of being loving. In fact, I think we have an idea of what Paul means here when we look at the only other place this word is used in our, in our New Testaments. It is used in 1 Thessalonians 2 when Paul says to the Thessalonians, but we were gentle, there's that word, we were gentle among you as a nursing mother cherishes her children. 
What is gentle? A nursing mother. A nursing mother who cradles that baby, that baby of inestimable value, in love and kindness, protects and provides and cares for in the most kind and gentle of ways. Now let's look at those contrasts. He says, you are not a battler when it comes to being a servant of the Lord. You are kind like a nursing mother. You see that contrast there that's so powerful of a soldier versus a nursing mother? Now, my question for you in today is when you go to spread the gospel, whether it's through this church ministry or just in your own personal ministry or to your families or your friends or your coworkers, do you think of yourselves as a battler or do you think of yourselves as being gentle like a nursing mother with the people that you're talking to? Paul is telling us we clearly need to be one and we cannot be the other. Notice what he goes on to say. But be gentle unto all men, not just some, to every single person we encounter. Now this is a challenge, isn't it? Right here. To be kind to every person we encounter. I've noticed this at my workplace. I, if I, you're anything like me, you know this too. There are believers at my workplace and we have wonderful fellowship together. We see eye to eye on so many things. I have such a wonderful time connecting with them. And you know my tendency is, it's to identify all the people who are most like me and say, you know what, I wanna go be with them. I wanna spend time, I wanna work with them because it's comfortable and it's easy. And you know the Lord really convicted me at one point. He said, well how about you be like me and you go find the people who are most different from you and be kind and gentle to them. Why don't you find the people who, who deny what you believe in? Why don't you find the people who reject the things that you stand for? And I'd be happy to share at some point, it's been so neat to see in a specific example of, 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 of someone where I've taken that express approach, I'm going to be kind, I'm going to be gentle, I'm going to be as, 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 as moving toward this person as I can to see this avenue open up that otherwise would not have been there. And you have that opportunity in your neighborhood and with your family and in your school. Not to pursue people in terms of trying to become like them, but to pursue people to show gentleness to them, to show kindness to them, to invest in them in love as Christ invested in you before you ever were his friend. We are to be gentle to all Man, have this kindness of this nursing mother showing the greatest love and compassion to those around us. Notice what also he says. Not only must we not strive, not only must we be gentle unto everyone, but he says we must be apt to teach. Now this is the same qualification for an elder, for a church leader in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The idea of this word is we are simply to be instructive. We are to be given to teaching. You know people like that, don't you? Perhaps teachers that you know. We're blessed to have teachers in this church. Not only trained teachers, but teachers on, uh, for our Sunday school children who are just so given to it. And if you see someone who is given to teach, what do you see about them? You see that they are competent teachers. They are thoughtful, they are trained. They try to understand how to communicate a truth in the way that someone is willing to receive it. They come down to the child's level for them to receive it. But they are also not just competent at teaching, but it is part of their character. They're just given to it. No matter where they go, 
they are going to teach. No matter who they're talking to, they are just given to investing in the way of teaching. And, and Timothy is instructed to have this same kind of idea. Every servant of the Lord must have that kind of approach, that aptitude, that kind of, of, of desire to teach. Now, again, you might think of this as being in a classroom, as, as being some kind of, oh, I'm not that. But in a sense, you can be, because you know the truth. And to be apt to teach in this context is simply to say, you know, I know what the Bible says. And I want to impart what the Bible says to other people whenever I can. And that might be in a very small way, or it might be an extended conversation. It might just be in one or two words that I have the opportunity to share, or it might be going out to lunch with someone and giving a formal gospel presentation. Whatever it is, I just have a direction to take the truth that God has revealed to me and give it to others. Is that characteristic of my disposition? Notice not only not strive, gentle unto all men, apt to teach, but also patient. Friend, do you know what you will find if you are apt to teach? If you are invested in teaching others, you're going to need patience. And this is a special kind of patience. This word patience has the idea of bearing up against evil being inflicted on you. This patience is the kind of Teflon that which arrows and stones and spears are thrown against and they just bounce off. It's of one who is rejected, who has doors slammed in their face, who is cursed, who is mocked, who is belittled, who is denied, and yet responds with complete grace, responds with love and compassion. As Jesus said, if you bless the people who bless you, you're no different from the open, vile sinners. They do the same thing. He said, you show you're a Christian by blessing those who curse you. By responding with that patience when you are afflicted, when you are denied for the cause of Christ, you have this kind of disposition as, of patience as Jesus Christ himself had. And then notice what he says next. In meekness, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. This idea of meekness has the idea of a humble, gentle submission. A humility that says, I don't mind being trotted on. You step on me, that's okay. We remember that wonderful book that some of us have read that depicts this kind of I life versus the Christ life. And uh, the Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. And he, he depicts in there a snake that when you poke a snake, the snake rises up and gets big and flares out its head and hisses. And that's humanity. That's, that's our self nature. He says the worm is the one that simply grovels. The one that simply you step on it and it just, it doesn't do anything. What's a worm going to do? It just simply lays there. And he points out that we are like Jesus to be the worm, not the snake. Not the one who rears up and strikes when evil is brought upon it for the sake of Christ. But the one who humbly and in submission to God accept it meekly. He says, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. That word instructing has the idea of child discipline. It's very interesting. Hebrews 12 uses that same word to say, say that, those who, who, that God chastens those that he loves. 
He chastens. God disciplines. So it's the idea of correction for the sake of learning, for the sake of teaching. And notice the context here. He's saying there are all these people around that are opponents. They oppose us. They oppose God. They oppose their true interest. And what does the servant of the Lord do? do? In meekness, he corrects them. In meekness, he corrects them for the sake of illuminating, for the sake of teaching. This again is his disposition. The disposition is to bring, push out truth, to speak truth in love and gentleness. And when slings and arrows are received back, the person simply accepts them. Accepts them kindly and lovingly and compassionately. Now friend, for those of you who've been out in these neighborhoods on a Saturday morning, you've had doors slammed in your face. You've had people, as you say, hi, I'm from the Straight Gate Church, and they close the door and say, no, thank you, not interested, or they get angry. Some of you have been, and know what it is for people to oppose you for the sake of your Christian testimony, and we all can admit in that moment, I'm not feeling very gentle. I'm not feeling very meek. I'm not feeling very kind. I'm not feeling very humble. But Paul says that the servant of the Lord must be these things. He must exhibit this kind of disposition marked by gentleness, kindness, meekness, humility, and indeed this desire to communicate truth to whoever is in front of us. So this is the properties of this disposition. And I would just ask you tonight, allow the Holy Spirit to speak. Which one of these is least like you? Which one of components of this disposition do you say, man, I need some work there? Does this look like the way we give the gospel? Does it look like the way we are in our disposition toward the lost? So notice, first of all, the properties of this disposition. But we need to understand the next layer below it because I want us to see, secondly, the perspective of this disposition. What allows us to have this disposition? What allows us to be this kind of gospel witness? Notice what he says in verse 25. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, being this gospel witness to the lost, if God peradventure, that idea is perhaps, we don't know, if God perhaps will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You say, how does this affect the way my disposition is toward the lost? Here's the perspective we need to have, first of all, of the true condition of the hearer of the true condition of the hearer. I think it'll be best if we start at the end and move backwards, as sometimes we find when we study scripture. Notice verse 26. These hearers that are opposing us, that are opposing the gospel, it says that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. What is the true condition of those who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what this verse is saying. He's saying they are captives. Now there's some ambiguity in the Greek about the pronouns here. Who, his, who he is, who, is taking, who takes them captive, and whose will this is at. I understand it to be they are ta taken captive by the devil. 
They are taken captive by the devil. This would be consistent with what we see elsewhere in Scripture, that those who are lost are captives. They are slaves to the devil. But not only that, notice this little phrase, and that they may recover themselves. We need to know that little phrase. If you don't have it in the margin of your Bible, write it in. Come to their senses. That is the literal meaning of that Greek phrase. Recover themselves means come to their senses. Like a person who has been in a drunken stupor and has now come to their senses. What are we praying for that people receive when they come to salvation? We pray, God, may they come to their senses. They're like drunken people right now. They're like sleeping people right now. They're like dead people right now. They need to wake up. Why? Because they're captives. Now, let me ask you this. Why do you think it would be that that perspective, that perspective of lost people would help me maintain my Christian disposition of gentleness, kindness, meekness, and everything else? I think it's because this. Have you ever dealt with an, just an obviously intoxicated person? Obviously, blatantly intoxicated person? Do you know it's kind of hard to get very mad at them? How many of you here remember Prince William? Prince William, no, not in, not in Great Britain. Prince William, right down the street here on Franklin Avenue. We used to go out to Dairy Queen on Franklin Avenue, and Prince William, oh, was this guy a character? He was perpetually drunk. It was tragic. It was really sad. He was perpetually drunk, and he would stumble up to us as we were out there on Saturday mornings having completed busing, and he would go around telling all the women how beautiful they were. He'd just say, man, there's a bunch of beautiful women here. They were, the the ladies, really, I know you were flattered. I know you were really flattered by Prince William's compliments. But, you know, he was one of those affable drunks. But he was pretty hard to get mad at Prince William. And it was really easy to feel compassion. I saw this in my own life personally. When I was a senior at at Duke University, there was a a presentation on campus that was uh, about 9-11 the September 11th attacks, and the whole object of the presentation was to explore the possibility that this was a conspiracy, that the United States government had brought these buildings down and it was the biggest conspiracy of all time. Well, I was the president of a certain uh, politically related organization, and I took it on myself to write a letter to the editor of the student newspaper and basically say, this should have no place on campus. This is nonsense, and it calls into question, uh, it it, it really is is an unfortunate denigration integration to our government and to our people that are serving us in our armed forces. Well, I never heard anything about that. I just submitted the letter to the editor. It was printed. It was published under my name until, I don't know, maybe two or three years later, I saw that I received a Facebook message. And it was from the gentleman, the student who at the time had put on this presentation that I had criticized that I thought should have no place in polite society or on campus. And uh, this was a humdinger of a message, I'll tell you that much. He told me that he had never gotten the opportunity to say, well, a profanity directed at my direction, and uh, he expressed his extreme displeasure with the letter to the editor that I had written. 
Well, I went to this person's Facebook page because I thought, well, this is certainly interesting, not the communication I was expecting to receive out of the blue. And I saw on his Facebook page that very evening he had sent it to me, he said something like drinking myself to sleep tonight or some, something else recognizing that he was absolutely besotted. And you know what? I didn't get very mad about that message. I said, this poor guy got really drunk and got really upset and decided to send a really nasty message to me. And I can't remember exactly, but I wrote him back and I just tried to be as kind as possible. I'm sorry you feel that way. And this is, you know, just kind of a, it is what it is. Good luck, God bless. Why is that? It's because when you see that the people who are opposing you and opposing the cause of Christ are blinded, they are in a drunken stupor, they are not seeing clearly, you are able to look on them as compassion, with compassion. You don't need to get angry. You don't need to defend yourself. You simply see them for how the Bible sees them as. You see the true condition. But not only that, notice also the perspective of this disposition is of the true work that is needed. Notice again in verse number 25, we are instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. What do these people who are blinded, what do these people who are drunken need? They need repentance. They need to have a complete change of mind, a complete change of soul in relationship to God. But repentance to what? To the acknowledging of the truth. This word acknowledging is the Greek word epigenosis. It's not gnosis, knowledge. It's epigenosis. It's precise, complete, full knowledge. It's the embrace of all the truth when it comes to the gospel. These people who are drunken need to have their eyes open to reality. They need to wake up from their stupor and they need to see God's reality for what it actually is. They need repentance that is moving them to know the truth for themselves. That's their need. And how are they going to get it? Look at this verse. Because perhaps God will give them it. Now does your evangelism have a place for God giving repentance to people? Romans chapter 2 tells us that the goodness of God brings us to repentance. It is the goodness of God that, it, that, is, that brings every single person to repentance. And it's not just here in our Bibles. Look over with me to 2 Corinthians. Will you turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul makes the same point here. It is so essential to understanding God's work in the gospel. He says in verse 3, of 2 Corinthians 4, but if our gospel be hid, if it is hidden, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. What is the characteristic of those who don't believe in this city? Their minds are blinded by the devil. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them, should wake them up should bring them to repentance. He says, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What did God give you? Light. 
What did he give you? He has shined in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How did you get saved? Because God gave you repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's how? That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now don't get confused and don't get twisted in your mind. This same phrase, the knowledge of the truth or the acknowledging of the truth, Paul uses that exact same phrase in 1 Timothy 2 when he says that God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Exact same thing. The fact that God gave you repentance does not mean that he does not desire that all men come to that state. But we must realize that men get saved because God gives them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's what he does. It's a divine work. It's not a human work. And that is why we can maintain our Christian disposition. You say, why? Because you're not the story. God is. And if you're not the story, don't insert yourself into the story. Don't become part of the story. You're a herald. You're the one who's just telling the truth. And you're trusting God to give repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Do you know it's going to happen? No, that's why he says, perhaps God will give repentance to the acknowledging of the truth but you know that he's the one who does it, not you. You see, there are two problems that we run into that, allow, that, that, that destroy this Christian disposition. The first is when we go in as warriors, as people prepared for battle, and say, put your dukes up, we're going to have a debate. You want to argue about the Bible? I can argue that all the day long. I've got all the best arguments. I've listened to all the best apo apologetics presentations. I've got an argument for every single thing you say. Let's see who's the better debater. Friend, you're not the story. God's the one who gives repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So don't strive, don't fight, don't war. It's his job, it's not mine. You see, if when we understand that it's not my skill, first and foremost, that brings people to salvation, the skill of my arguments, just the brilliant presentation I put forth, my pride doesn't kick in and say it's about me. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to Perhaps we've heard say, you know, so many people I've led to Christ. I've led this person. I've led that person. I've led this person. And I've led that person. And sometimes it can be, look at me. Look at what a skillful evangelist I am. Friend, in every one of those cases, if there was a glorious salvation, it was because God gave them repentance, the acknowledging of the truth. It wasn't you. So our pride and our vanity just needs to go by the wayside. And we can be gentle and kind. But also it means that when we're talking with someone about the gospel and they immediately put their dukes up and they're coming ready to fight and ready to argue, so often our flesh gets involved. And we say, I can't lose this argument. I need to be the one who prevails. I need to win this wrestling match, this grappling match for the cause of Christ. And we start arguing and we start bickering and we start quarreling and we get angry. When we realize it's his work, not, on, not mine, when we realize a divine work is what is needed, we can step out of that battlefield. We can put our dukes down and we can simply say, I want to instruct. I just want to give you what the truth is and pray that God would give repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So what is the true role that I play? What is this perspective of my job? The Bible says it best and it says when it says that we just sow seed. Is it prepared seed? Yes. We are apt to teach. Is it thoughtful seed? Yes. 
in love, we want to identify the, 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 the central need of that person's life that the truth of Jesus Christ can, that, that can, sh- can shine on that person. But ultimately and finally, we recognize that my job is to spread seed, is to give the truth. And if someone wants to fight, we say, no thanks. There's someone else that God may be working on that I can talk to. We simply have the disposition of gentleness, of humility, of patience, and of an aptitude to teach and to proclaim. So first of all, there's the properties of this disposition. Secondly, there's the perspective of this disposition. And then finally, the practice of this disposition. Would you look with me back now at verse 23? This is where Paul's command is that leads us into this entire section. And I think we're finally ready to understand it. Verse 23 says to Timothy, But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes, and the servant of the Lord must not strive. You see the, con- you see, you see the connection there? avoid certain topics because they're only going to provoke fights and you can't fight. You shouldn't fight. That's what he's saying. That's the, that's the message that he's proclaiming. Now, what is he talking about? This word foolish here is the word from which we get our English word moron. He's saying moronic questions avoid. Not only that, he is saying un- Learned, untutored, ignorant questions avoid. He says something similar in Titus 3.9. He says, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. If you want to be an effective gospel witness, you have to know how to avoid profitless bickering moronic speculation. You need to know how to avoid the kind of things that won't instruct people toward the acknowledging of the truth. You see, what is your job? To give the truth. What is God's job? To give them repentance, to acknowledge the truth that you presented. Where does the truth come from? You give them the word of God. What does God do? He opens their eyes and gives them repentance so that they can acknowledge it and they can embrace it for themselves. Now, what does this suggest for us? The first thing it suggests for us is that you and I need to be skillful at directing the subject of our, of our evangelism, the subject of our evangelism. Do you remember when Jesus did this with the woman at the well? He told the woman at the well, if you knew who I was, you would ask water of me, and then, you, and then I would give it, and it would be this wonderful experience. It would be this living water. You'd never need to thirst again. And you know she comes on with another comment. Jesus tells her, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five. And the one you're now with is not my husband. And then she started getting really nervous. And do you remember what she said? She said, well, you're a Jew. And you say that Jews worship in that mountain. But we say it's worship over here. She was evading. She was changing the subject. She was getting a little uncomfortable. And she was saying, can't we talk about a, a, a little bit of contention among us? And I love what Jesus did. Jesus just very skillfully directed it right back to where he wanted it to be. What you need is you need to know how to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he came right back to the subject. He didn't, he didn't dive into the debate. He said, what does this woman actually need to know? 
And friends, if you are a faithful evangelist of Jesus Christ, you are going to find a lot of people who want to change the subject and who never want to get to the true subject. You're going to find people who want to evade what the real source of truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he means, and they're just going to want to argue. They're going to want to find subjects that may be important but that are not central. This Wednesday evening, this last Wednesday evening, we were at the park, and Abby found uh, uh, one of her students that was there, and this older student, this older sister of this student, and Abby was talking to him, and I happened to come up, and we started to talk. I was just asking this maybe 14 or 15-year-old girl, and we started talking, and she, she kind of accepted who God was, and she realized that Jesus was alive, but she said, you know, this whole thing, and, and, and what it came down to, she says, I don't like the way the Bible basically deals with homosexuality. And we have to know that subject is going to become only more and more and more and more a stumbling block to faith for people, especially younger people in our generation. And you know, we could have argued and we could have debated over that. And that's something that's an important subject. It's a good subject. It's a subject that we need to stand on the Bible's truth regarding. But you know, that was not the fundamental thing that that girl needed to grapple with at the moment. She needed to grapple with some more basic things. And that's where simply we tried to bring it back to. Who is Jesus? He's going to be your judge one day. Are you right with him? And you could go on this line on any number of topics about human sexuality, about the origins of the world, about the inspiration of scripture, about any number of things that are important things for you to stand on in truth. But when it comes to the salvation of souls, there may be something fundamental that someone just doesn't want to deal with about who Jesus Christ is and whether there's an empty tomb, and whether he's alive, and whether he's coming back to be their judge. Let me encourage you, if you're going to be an effective evangelist, know how to direct the subject, and say, you know what, that's an interesting topic, but can we talk about this for just a minute? Can we talk about who Jesus is? Remember to direct the subject. Don't be those who simply give yourself to whatever distraction the person you are speaking with wants to engage in. The second thing is this. Not only direct the subject of the communication, but discern the spirit of the listener. Discern the spirit of the listener. When Paul says here, avoid any kind of this foolish, moronic, ignorant discussion... I think there has to be a sense here of discerning what is going on in the person who's listening. Listen to these words from, from Proverbs 18. A fool has no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. Here's what that verse is saying. A fool has no interest in learning. He only wants to spout something from his heart. He only wants to share his opinion. And do you know there are countless people in this city, they have no interest in actually learning what you have to say about the gospel or having a teachable or receptive heart. They just want to debate. They just want to argue. They just want to bicker. And I think part of what it takes to be a skillful spiritual witness is when you engage in conversation with a, a particular person, ask yourself, is this person receptive to what I'm saying in the truth? Do they have an ear that's willing to listen or they only have their gloves up looking to box, looking to fight? Now, if they're looking to fight, that doesn't mean that you just immediately have to run away from them. There may be a, a, a truth that you just share with them and then be done. But it is to say this. If your prayer ultimately that God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, you don't need to sit and bicker endlessly with those who have no spirit, who have no heart to hear. 
finally, not just direct the subject, not just discern the spirit of the hearer, but finally, just deny yourself impulse to fight. Deny it. I love what this verse says. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid. And this word avoid literally has the meaning of just begging off. Here's what we would say in our modern English. Say no thank you. No thank you. When you feel that urge come up to get in an argument and a strife and a fight, just say no thank you and be done. When someone is looking to argue about pointless subjects and won't get to the one that is at the heart of their real need, you can just say, you know what, no thank you, God bless you. There may be someone else that God has for you to share the truth of the gospel with. What is your job? To be gentle, to be kind, to be meek, to instruct and correct with the truth, to be apt, to be prepared, to be competent in teaching, but ultimately recognizing that you're not the story. So don't become part of the story by your disposition, by the way you relate to those around you. Friends, this should be such, I hope, a liberating thing for us. To recognize that there is a God in heaven who involves himself in the affairs of men to draw people to himself, to give people repentance to the acknowledging the truth, and this Wednesday evening, we have an opportunity on this street right out here to just go be gentle and kind to every single person who passes and pray that God would give some of those very same people the repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they'd wake up, that they'd sober up, that they'd be uh, delivered from the snare of the devil and ultimately to, be, to come to repentance and to the acknowledging of the truth. Friends, you and I aren't the story. So let's not make ourselves part of it by the spirit of anger, of difficulty, or of a lack of kindness and gentleness that we are called to bear as people of God.